Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Sandra Smith. I'm Trey Gowdy. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. He's a Trump challenger who's been picking up speed in the Republican race for president. So I think Trump could probably defeat Biden in a 50.1 election. But I think I'm the only candidate in this race who can deliver a Reagan-style, 1980-style moral mandate, a landslide election, and unite the country in the process. We speak with Vivek Ramaswamy. And Lisa Brady. One pandemic trend isn't going away. It's keeping a lot of offices empty. This is a huge permanent shift that we're expecting to see here in the United States and around the world. And I'm Kim Strassel. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. Five weeks from today, the Republicans running for president get a big spotlight. The first debate on Fox News Channel in Milwaukee. So the clock is ticking for the candidates to qualify, including former Vice President Mike Pence, who tells Fox... From a polling standpoint, we'll easily qualify, but, uh, but getting 40,000 donors in just a matter of a few short weeks uh, is a, a bit of a challenge. Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, and Chris Christie are on track to qualify. So is Nikki Haley and, of course, former President Trump who has hinted he might not show up to face challengers with single-digit poll numbers. I have never known him to be scared of anything. I certainly don't expect him to be scared of the debate stage. Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., tells Fox Trump should be there. You don't show that you're serving the American people by being absent. Vivek Ramaswamy says he'll be there. He has more than enough donors. It's been great to see this country responding so powerfully to my message. Vivek Ramaswamy was third in the latest Fox News poll and third in the morning consult poll, up to 8%. Part of what we're doing is even reaching many non-traditional audiences for a Republican primary candidate. 40% of our donors, and we've shattered 65,000-plus unique donors in just the first several months of this campaign, 40% of them are first-time-ever donors to the GOP in any form. And so to me, that says that we're actually bringing new people along in our movement. And I don't even talk much about Republicans and Democrats for that reason. I talk about whether we are pro-American on this side of the movement or whether you are in some ways anti-American. And when you divide it up that way, it's easily 80-20 in our favor. Half the 20 are people younger than me who never learned those ideals in the first place. I had no donor list or no pre-existing donors. I'm a first-time candidate of any kind. We just did it by talking directly to the people. So how has it been to learn on the fly running for office? The first time you've ever done this. So what's it been like for you? I think there are some real advantages to doing it this way because a lot of the perspectives I'm bringing to the table are different than what the traditional political machine teaches you to do. You usually want to test the things you say in a poll before you say them. You know, to a reasonable person, that might make sense. I find that that makes me less effective at authentically delivering my message. 
And at least so far, this seems to be the winning strategy. When I started at literally 0.0%, very little name ID in the country. Now, even well before the first debate, we're already polling at third. And I think it's encouraging to say that people across this country, they're not responsive to whether or not you check a box of them having known you for 10 years in politics. They're responsive to what is our vision for the country. And if I have one thing in this campaign going for me, it is the fact that I'm bringing a vision, a unique vision of what we're running to as a nation. Not just what we're running from, but what are we running to, to our vision of what it means to be an American. And I think that that fact of my also being able to be independent of the mega donor class, I had the luxury of being able to put $15 million, really more than that actually, of my hard-earned money into this campaign already. That's given me the liberty to really speak the truth about issues that many other candidates are far more constrained about. And so I think those have really been proven to be competitive advantages. Those are fueling our rise. One of my other learnings is really not to listen to the political consultants who told me at the very beginning that your message is too complex, too smart. You need to dumb it down. I haven't followed that advice. In fact, I think that dumbing it down would be a dumb idea. I think that the threats to liberty as they exist today, the challenges that Americans face in their lives, they are complex. And I think that distilling that into talking points is not the right answer. A couple of years ago, you had your book, Woke Inc. You come from the entrepreneur and the technology sector, and you talk about social justice doesn't have a place in, say, the corporate world. So what is your message to people when it comes to social media, when it comes to free speech? My message is the path to truth runs through free speech. Free speech and open debate, that is the foundation of our country. It's in the First Amendment for a reason, that you get to express your opinion, Dave, as long as I get to express mine in return. That's the American bargain. But what's happening today is the government is using private companies to get done through the back door what the government could not censor through the front door under the Constitution. That's a new threat to liberty that didn't exist in the past. But as I often say, if it is state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. These companies ought to be bound by the First Amendment to the Constitution when they're responding to government threats or inducements to censor speech that the government could not censor directly. And that's, again, one of the unique features of my candidacy is that I'm not just reciting slogans from 1980 because it's not 1980 anymore. The threats to liberty today are unique. I just released our list of potential nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as nominees to the federal appellate courts. I think it's important that people see the kinds of judges who I will appoint. And one of the criteria I used was not only do we want judges with a firm commitment to an originalist understanding of the Constitution, but we also need judges. And I think we need a U.S. president who sees the ways in which those threats to liberty present themselves in the 21st century. And frankly, I think I'm the only candidate in either party who has a detailed understanding of how the government is deputizing the private sector to do its dirty work, be it through the ESG movement, be it through the weaponization of the financial system, or be it through the weaponization of internet companies. And I think that's something that our base understands, but which many politicians in DC do not. And that's what I'm bringing to the table as an outsider. Now, former President Trump did that, of course, in 2016 with his list for Supreme Court justices. He ended up putting three on the court. He also, in 2016, was a candidate who was not a seasoned politician, didn't follow the political advisors like you say. So why not just have a second Trump term? Why you instead? Look, I think I'm better positioned to take this country forward. 
I don't want to march to a national divorce. I want to march to a national revival. I do agree with Trump on a lot of policies. We have our small share of, of policy disagreements like any two people would. But largely, my goal is to take that America first agenda, to take it even further. Here's the thing. I've noticed about Trump, and I think most of the country knows this about Trump. It may not even be his fault, but about 30% of this country becomes psychiatrically ill whenever he speaks. <laughs> they feel compelled to disagree with whatever he says, even if they otherwise would have agreed with it if somebody else had actually said it. In many ways, I'm going further than Trump did. I'm not just saying build the wall. I'm saying use the military to secure the southern border. We're legally justified in doing it. I'm not just saying put Betsy DeVos on top of the U.S. Department of Education. I think we should shut it down and return the money back to states and parents and their families. So in so many ways, I'm going far further than Trump did. But for whatever reason, I haven't at least yet had that effect on people. To the contrary, what I'm realizing is many more people are flocking to our message, especially young people in this country who we're going to need to win this election in a landslide. So I think Trump could probably defeat Biden in a 50.1 election. But I think I'm the only candidate in this race who can deliver a Reagan-style, 1980-style moral mandate, a landslide election, and unite the country in the process. And so that's why I'm in this race, because I think I'm going to deliver that in a way that no other candidate, I think, can. Obviously, the former president is the front runner. He has been indicted in New York. He was indicted in Florida. The first hearing since his not guilty plea was on Tuesday. There's talk of him possibly being indicted again over the January 6th probe. You were critical of the former president right after January 6th, and the riot and the speech. You called it abhorrent back then. What do you think of the investigation into him on that front? So I think there's a real difference between a bad judgment and an illegal behavior. I would have made different judgments than Trump made. I said that then, I'm saying it now. But that does not make it illegal. And I believe that this prosecution, should it proceed, would be a disaster. It would further politicize the justice system. I don't think President Trump was responsible for January 6th. I think systematic censorship in this country was the real cause. And so I think we have to be able to distinguish between saying, I would have made different judgments. That was a bad judgment. I'll remind you, I'm running for U.S. president in the same race that Trump is running for a reason. But I still stand firmly against any prosecution. And I think we should not become some banana republic where the party in power throws every ounce of spaghetti it has against the wall to stop its opposition from running. Yet that's exactly what's happening today. Not only is that shameful, I think that's dangerous. And unless we reconcile ourselves with that, I truly worry that January 6th may be just a preview of what's to come. I'm keen to see us get to a revival moving forward as a country rather than to be mired in really the tug of war between the two parties using the justice system as a weapon to do it. But I think that's going to take real leadership. It's going to take a different generation. I think it's going to take an outsider. That is why I'm in this race. My gut instinct says we're going to win this primary. We will win the general election in a landslide and unite this country. But I don't want to get there by seeing Trump eliminated from competition. When I want to get there by convincing the voters of this country to come along with us. And as you can see in the last few weeks, that's exactly what we're doing. When he went to court in the classified case, you were outside, you held a news conference, you were demanding answers about President Biden or Attorney General Garland's involvement in that investigation. Have you gotten any of those answers you've demanded? We have not. Several of the Republican candidates have answered my call to really be clear about where they stand. I think they were trying to hide. I didn't let them hide. And so at least now we know where people stand. I think that's important on the Republican side. 
On Biden's side, there's a defined timeline that the Department of Justice has to respond to FOIA requests. If they do not comply with those timelines, you can expect that we will take legal action to take that to the next step. The former president, if he were the nominee and it didn't work out for you, he has spoken fondly of you. There is talk of maybe he would consider you as a running mate. Would you even go there? I don't do well in a number two position. I've built my career by building businesses that I've led. I've written three books that I actually wrote based on my own ideas, not somebody else's. I'm an independent thinker, but I'm also an independent doer. And that just means that we all have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, how are we going to have our maximal contributions? I think building businesses, writing books, being a thought leader, building enterprises and leading people in the private sector, that's what I've excelled at. And I think there are great ways to make a contribution to the country that way. I'm not in this to be a politician. I am in this to lead a national revival. I expect fully that I will be the nominee, that I will be our next president. And I think about my destination is not even November 2024. I think about it as January 2033, when I'm leaving office. What do I want to tell the American people we did? I think we'll say we shut down the administrative state. We are no longer independent on our enemy, China, for our modern way of life. Our economy will be growing at over four plus percent again. And young Americans will actually be proud to be citizens of this country once again. Vivek Ramaswamy, Republican presidential candidate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Kim Strassel with your Fox News commentary coming up. They were beehives of activity. Now, some downtown office buildings across America are cavernous shells. So empty, there's an echo as cities try to win back tenants, lost first to pandemic lockdowns, and then a continued pandemic trend of working from home. We're going through a down cycle, like many cycles before this, and it's not going to be the city and their tax breaks that help us. It's going to be a return to businesses coming back to the office, mm -hmm. taking new space and expanding. That's what's going to save us here. Michael Rudder with Rudder Property Group, a commercial real estate agency in New York, also says cleaning up city streets and focusing on safety should be a priority. Empty offices have been a persistent issue, even as life has returned to some version of normal for many. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon telling Fox Business in January it shouldn't be a disaster, but that it varies from city to city. Nashville, Austin, Dallas, probably fine. You know, Chicago, New York, probably not. Dimon also said that while some buildings can be repurposed fairly quickly, others can't. It's also on the White House radar, with Lael Brainerd, the top economics advisor to the president, saying recently that some areas are adjusting to different patterns of more remote work and that they're very attentive to where the financial risks may lie. New York is one of the big cities trying to fill empty spaces. So I am in a vacant office space uh, in Midtown Manhattan on 39th Street, close to Bryant Park. Fox Business's Lydia Hu. This used to be prime real estate location for a business here in the city. But this space has been sitting vacant since the start of the pandemic, so more than three years. Wow. Is this a scene that's being repeated around the country or, you know, only in big cities? 
It is definitely being repeated across the country um, and really concentrated in the big cities. We have some data that helps us understand from a group called CBRE, um, and it's showing that vacancy rates in our major cities are high and they're staying there. So, for example, here in New York City, where I am, the vacancy rate right now is about 15.6%. So that's a little more than double the rate before the pandemic. It's a multi-decade high. And there are some cities where it's much worse than that, Lisa. For example, in San Francisco, before the pandemic, office vacancy rates were around 4.6%. Now, more than 31%. So when you think about that, that means more than three out of every 10 office spaces are empty without a tenant. And landlords are in a really hard spot because that means no revenue for the office space that they own. Right. And in terms of those landlords, who does own these buildings? Does it depend on what part of the country they're in? Um, you know, who are the owners and how much are they losing? Yeah, that's a great question. There's probably various factors when it comes to ownership, you know, who exactly owns these various buildings. Probably a lot of them are real estate investment trusts. Um, and they're losing a lot of money, not just in terms of the rent, but now it's turned a corner and they're now losing in property value because they've sat empty for so long and they can't find tenants to fill that space. So there have actually been some recent studies that estimate how much value has been wiped away from these commercial spaces. There were some economists from NYU and Columbia that took a look at office stock in New York City and determined that through the end of last year, they've already lost $69 billion in value. So that means if all of that office space were to be resold now to new buyers, they would be worth $69 billion less now than they were before. That's a big problem because that gets us into kind of the next kind of criteria to consider, which is called a doom loop, where that loss in property value also means a loss in tax revenue. And that impacts city services and then residents who would maybe want to live here. That's just one of the ripple effects, right? Because there are also a lot of businesses around these buildings. Are they struggling to survive without the foot traffic? 100%. In that respect, it does seem like it's getting a little bit better than the depths of the pandemic. When we were all still mostly working from home, you know, the small neighborhood, mom and pops, the coffee shop, the pizza parlor, you know, they had no one to serve. Now that it's kind of reverted to more of a hybrid work scenario, I think we're seeing some of these smaller businesses doing better. They're not struggling as much. It's not back to like the pre-pandemic levels of success or viability that we once had, but it's better than, than what it was. And I guess it could be argued it may never return to pre-pandemic levels of business if you're not going to have um, all of the workers back in, in all of the offices. Um, some major companies, including big tech companies, you know, they made headlines by insisting that employees return to the office at least some of the time. So why are there so many empty spaces? I guess a lot of companies haven't followed that pattern. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, you know, even though we have some of these big businesses that are insisting workers return, um, but we're turning on maybe a hybrid work schedule. But when we think about these big businesses, banks, they're making headlines and insisting that workers return. 
that really impacts the occupancy rate of some of the buildings. So I think one thing to keep in mind is the vacancy rate is different than the occupancy rate. The occupancy rate is how many people are actually at work when in a leased space. And that's still not back to pre-pandemic levels, even though big employers have said, hey, you got to be in the office at least three days a week. New York City, for example, the occupancy rate is around 50%, five zero. So that's about like half of workers are back in the office when they're supposed to be. Um, that's far down from the pre-pandemic level of around 90%. Vacancy rate is the, just filling the space. So maybe there's just no tenant in that space whatsoever. And that's the problem. Big businesses have said, hey, you got to be back in the office. That really impacts the class A type of property, office space, like the really brand new, all the amenities, super fancy, exciting to be in. The big banks probably have those spaces, the law firms, you know, the accountants, places where they are going to show off. What analysts are concerned about are considered class B and class C office spaces. This is more mid-level or a little bit older and outdated, maybe not the most modern, but these are spaces too that they were filled before the pandemic. They were not vacant and now they are vacant. So even when we have those return to work orders, these spaces are still sitting empty because businesses that were filling them are not the big businesses that we're hearing that were making headlines. These are guys that maybe they just are all working remotely now. And that's not going to change. We even have a recent report out from McKenzie analysts there talking about how this work from home model, hybrid work, it is here to stay. And they took a look at nine major cities around the world and they forecast, Lisa, moving forward through the end of the decade, property values for these commercial spaces that are going to be impacted because we're working from home, the values could decline by $800 billion by 2030. That's a huge permanent shift that we're expecting to see here in the United States and around the world. And you've already noted the ripple effects on tax revenue that lower property values mm -hmm. will have. Is there a fear that this trend could turn into a bigger crisis than just empty spaces? For instance, defaults leading to bank failures? Yeah. I mean, not we don't hear the alarm bells ringing around bank failures, but I think people are definitely talking about it, especially considering what we just saw you know, over the past couple of months with the three failures of some regional banks. Most commercial loans are held by regional banks. So there is concern if landlords are not able to pay loans as they're coming due because they don't have commercial tenants, how will that impact the banks? And banks are making plans for this. They're setting aside more money in the event loans are not paid when they come due. And in fact, we heard from Wells Fargo just last week that they have increased their allowances for those credit losses by almost $1 billion. But I will also tell you, Lisa, that in talking to some real estate experts here around New York City, um, Michael Rudder is one that I was talking with. He's with the Rudder Property Group. Uh, he doesn't think that's enough. He thinks the losses could be even more than that. Wow. What about the building owners? Are they doing anything? Um, lowering rents, for instance, or offering incentives to try to, you know, lure people back? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is definitely a fight to find any tenant that they can. Slashing rents, offering more kind of accommodations. You know, when you have a commercial tenant coming into your space, you kind of fit that space to what they want, you know, making it so it's comfortable, so it's theirs. And usually those that's all negotiated. And landlords are being extremely accommodating to those types of requests right now. 
We're also seeing local lawmakers stepping in and trying to come up with ways to make these commercial spaces usable. We are seeing conversations around converting commercial space, office space that's empty into apartments. We have a shortage of affordable housing in this country and in our big cities. So one idea is, hey, we should just convert this empty office space into apartments by increasing the apartment stock. We're going to bring the home prices down, apartment prices down. So that's one idea. And they're offering, you know, various tax breaks to developers that are willing to take that on. Another idea that is being pursued here in New York City is offering property developers a tax break for updating older office space that's vacant. So just a moment ago, you know, I explained the, the class A, the really beautiful office space that they're not, no one's having trouble renting that. So one idea is if we make more of our office space beautiful and brand new, we won't have a problem renting it and we'll offer a tax break to developers to do that. There are skeptics, though, you know, that say, listen, it's too little too late. It costs too much money to renovate these properties, whether you're turning them into apartments or newer office space uh, and too much time. But, you know, we're hearing from analysts in the commercial real estate sector. Something has to be done because, you know, we're just probably not going to go back to seeing the old ways pre-pandemic of having all this office space used now that people are really committed to this hybrid work lifestyle. Wow. It, I wonder who, you know, how many would have predicted this would be the the state of office space three years, more than three years after lockdown? It, it seems like um, just societies globally have, have turned some kind of a corner on that. Yeah. I mean, it really seems like a lot of people got a taste of what it's like to have that flexibility in the work schedule, be able to work from home and work from office fewer, from the office fewer days during the week, and they like it and they don't want to give it up. And now, you know, companies are just going to have to accommodate that. And that means they don't need as much office space. You know, when they look at their books, if that means that they can lease fewer offices or can consolidate and have a smaller footprint, they're going to do it. Fox Business's Lydia Hu, thank you so much for your time. You got it. My pleasure. Other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. A surfboard biting sea otter in Santa Cruz, California has once again evaded capture attempts by wildlife officials. For weeks this summer, the mischievous otter named 841 has been approaching surfers at sea, stealing and even damaging their equipment. This week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced it had launched a multi-agency search for her in an attempt to capture her and place her in a different habitat. This otter, though, has quite the history. A spokesperson for Monterey Bay Aquarium said the otter's mom was rescued in Santa Cruz back in 2016. There were reports that the mom had been approaching people on kayaks and boats, but nothing compared to her daughter's antics. They tried catching this otter last year when she was showing similar unusual behavior. And last year, the capture attempts deterred her behavior, at least for a little while. Officials say when she is captured, she's going to undergo a health assessment and eventually be rehomed in a zoo or an aquarium. But local surfers are speaking out against this plan, holding up surfboards that say, keep 841 free. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Hey, everyone, it's Kennedy, and you can listen to my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It's going five days a week on the Fox News Podcast Network. We're bringing you all the fan favorites. Listen on Spotify, Apple, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download podcasts. 
Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Kim Strassel. What's on your mind? When Jimmy Carter ran for president, the first U.S. senator to endorse him was Delaware's Joe Biden. Mr. Carter later wrote in his White House diary that the first-term Democrat had been his most effective supporter during the 1976 campaign. In 2021, Mr. Biden was the first president since Mr. Carter left office 40 years earlier to visit him in Plains, Georgia. Quote, those guys love each other, end quote, a former Biden aide told Maureen Dowd at the New York Times. They also resemble each other. Mr. Carter's presidency was mired in inflation, an energy crisis, foreign policy failures, and public unpopularity. So was Mr. Biden's. In policy and politics, the parallels between the Carter and Biden presidencies, at least outwardly, are striking. Start with the way the two men obtained the highest office. Both triumphed in crowded Democratic primaries and struggled to clinch their nominations by presenting themselves as enlightened moderates, on board with their party's liberal wing, but not so crazy as to alienate average Americans. Both ran in the fall as healing correctives to controversial predecessors. Mr. Carter made his bid to a nation exhausted by Vietnam and inflation and still reeling from Watergate. The promise of moral and religious leadership tapped into a public mood. Yet the nation remained deeply divided, and Mr. Carter only narrowly beat Gerald Ford. Forty-four years later, the country was similarly turbulent. Donald Trump had come into office a controversial figure, and Democrats added to the foment with a special counsel probe into false claims of Russian collusion and impeachment proceeding and daily accusations that he was a dictator in waiting. Add to this a pandemic that thrust much of the nation into lockdowns, school closures, mask mandates, and media-stoked anxiety. Mr. Biden, campaigning from his basement, hammered the controversial Republican on moral grounds and highlighted two modest promises, to handle COVID better and to be the anti-Trump. As in 1976, the challenger won, but narrowly. Both men reflexively turned to government as the answer to every problem, demagoguing the private sector and weighing it down with new regulations that stifled economic growth. Soaring inflation, rising interest rates, Regulatory assault and worrying economic indicators spooked markets in both eras, wiping out vast amounts of wealth. The late 1970s and the Biden years even share oddly similar social upheaval, with public angst over race-conscious governance, gay rights, education, court decisions, and rising crime. Another point of similarity lies in the response to the elections of 1978 and 2022. Presidents usually view midterm losses as a rebuke and a call to readjust. Mr. Carter viewed his as more a judgment on his party than himself. Mr. Biden, in hock to his progressive wing, in spinning the GOP's modest gains as a Democratic win, also ignored his unpopularity. Both men chose not to heed the political wins. In Mr. Carter's case, the result was a landslide loss in 1980. Will Mr. Biden suffer a similar fate? The Republican Party has a bench of younger, accomplished leaders who have adopted the Trump fighting spirit, but who also have the vision and message. Conservative voters now must decide if their loyalty to Mr. Trump is worth risking this unique political opening. America can bounce back from the Biden malaise. It has the desire, the energy, and the formula. It needs a leader. I'm Kim Strassel, and this is adapted from my new book, The Biden Malaise, How America Bounces Back from Joe Biden's Dismal Repeat of the Jimmy Carter Years, out on July 18th. 
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for season three of my limited time podcast, Everything Will Be Okay, based on my best-selling book of the same name. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.